0: let's go back again to these uh, three particular viewpoints with regard to the time of the translation time of the rapture page 293 I uh, would suggest that you insert after number D two. the term imminency under major supporting arguments that seems logical and as much as under the other two positions the first point was denial of imminency so here we certainly ought to have the affirmation of imminency that uh, page 293 top of the page first point major supporting arguments the doctrine of imminency. I don't think there's anything more attested in the Scripture than uh, the expectation of the apostles uh, with respect to the return of Christ at any moment. Uh, Now, I've said that a number of times, and uh, none of you have brought up a question about it, There are some problems with that, but if you don't see the problems, I think I would prefer to just move on from them. But do you have any question with that? Any problem with that? Yes, sir. I'm just curious, when you talk about this imminency, are you talking about the return of Christ to set up the millennial kingdom or the rapture? All right. Good point for clarification. As a point of reference, refer back to the article on imminency. And remember that under the doctrinal argument, uh, delineated the distinction between the return of Christ with his church and the re- that is with his Saints uh, which is the second advent to the earth and the return of Christ for his Saints which is a rapture for with and what I am referring to with regard to imminency is the return of Christ for his Saints the rapture of the church not the return of Christ, with his saints. The second advent, climaxing the 70th seven, is obviously preceded by some very specific signs, beginning with the covenant that is established between the world ruler and the nation of Israel, and then the breaking of that covenant three and a half years later, the uh, great tribulation, and then the second advent. So there are a whole series of prophesied events in the 70th week. That cannot be seen as imminent. Yes, Mike. Oh, well, that could be a problem. i in uh, uh, hearing what, what the problem might be because there may be some in my ministry that I'll run into that have a little more pure... I've got your appetite out. whetted here. When the Lord made uh, that promise or... Let's put it this way. At the time of the apostles, were there any things that the Lord said that needed to be fulfilled? If, if it all Peter's death. Peter's death was certainly involved, wasn't it? Destruction of Jerusalem. And what was another? Destruction of Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem was involved there. Um uh, anything else sending the holy spirit sending of the holy spirit probably uh, not so uh, the promise of the spirit there were some promises there that needed uh, the either. preaching of the gospel in all the world okay the preaching of the gospel uh, yeah i'll come back to that yeah. uh, that's, what I was gonna say. <laughs> that's what you were going to say okay um now in the reading that you have done have you come up with any answers to those things does that uh... do those things peter's death does that militate against uh, imminency well, yes so the Brian? question that wayne and i were talking about was it the imminency of the rapture or the intimacy of the kingdom because they anticipated the kingdom but were they anticipating the rapture and i know There's those who debate that um, through a period of time they became disillusioned because they were living and dying and Christ hadn't come back and established their kingdom. So then we, they say, well, Paul began to reevaluate his doctrine and said, now we're going to have a rapture instead of having the influx of the kingdom at this time. We're going to have, you know, a period between. So were they waiting for the kingdom or were they waiting for the rapture? If they were waiting for the kingdom, then the things, all these things that were after Christ could be involved with the establishment of that kingdom. But that's, I guess that was a question. That's not an answer then. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm looking for an answer. Uh, is there? Did you in your reading? Did you come up with anything uh, with regard to these things that needed to transpire? Yes, Catherine. Well, they did say something about um, Christ saying that some of them weren't going to die until they saw the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. All right, mm-hmm. Matthew. That's Matthew 16. 20. 16. Is <coughs> the yeah. All right. Uh, question over here Are was. Is that before the transfiguration? Answer? Yes. yes. And was that a manifestation of Christ in glory? By the transfiguration, yes. That's right. I would take it that that's the direct reference in that passage. Did you read anything else about uh, Peter's death? Yes. Not about Peter's death, but just. Recalling uh, that Matthew 25 passage, that uh, Jesus said there's going to be wars and rumors of wars.
1: But well, wait a minute. Which were all
0: characterizations of the inter-advent age, right? Okay. Go ahead. I I just caught myself. I I was thinking if Peter maybe did not have to die, or or something like that. Uh, could that have been interpreted differently? In that last chapter in John, that he's going to be girded and taken where he didn't want to, I think I'm gonna, I don't think I'm going to let you rest on that for a little bit. I'd like you to think that through, and uh, I won't leave you hanging for the rest of the semester on it. but uh, there is, in your reading, some very specific answer to those uh, questions. And specifically with regard to Peter's death and other things that are prophesied that would happen within their lifetimes. So think about that because you need to work your way through it. Um, Let me come back to your observation concerning the preaching of the gospel. Uh, What would be the basis for saying that the gospel must be preached to all the world before uh, the Lord would come for His church. Matthew 28, 19, 20. Matthew 28, 19, and twenty. Okay, how would that uh, say that that must be done before Christ would come to it for His church? Don't Don't. Ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you at the end of the age. Okay. Would that say that, that that must be done prior to, must be completed prior to the rapture? Okay. It's very possible that it only will be completed during the time of the tribulation, say, by the 144,000, among others. Uh, <clears throat> Ladd, in his book, would say, do you mean that... Uh, what the church hasn't been able to do by the holy spirit in two thousand years they're going to do without the holy spirit sure. in uh, the tribulation i well, somebody said that uh, convert one Jew is worth 30 gentiles anyways <laughs> <laughs> Preaching powers. you might even have the gift of tongues in that age <laughs> all right uh, <laughs> go back to my question what is what passage would you use for citing such a thing uh, Matthew 24 14 is what I've heard here okay got... Matthew 24 14 this is uh, this is old ground here but uh, repetition aids learning sometimes and uh, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations and then the end shall come. What is the word translated gospel? Pardon? What does gospel mean? Good news. Good news. Alright. Uh, what good news? Verse 14. What good news? Good news of the kingdom. No. What good news? Before that, what's the word? Very simply, this. This good news, right? Doesn't this modify good news? Okay. This is real tough here. Uh, now, what is the antecedent of this? Pardon? Verse thirteen. Verse thirteen. What's it say? The one who endures to the end shall be saved. That's good news. So if you, uh, if you really work hard and strive uh, for your salvation, you may make it in the end. God's going to put you on a scale and weigh your good works versus your bad works. And if your uh, good works weigh more, that's going to be good news for you. a Mormonism. Is that what that means? This good news, that if you endure, if you strive to the end of your life, you will be saved, i.e. redeemed. How do you know that? He told us. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I just wondered if you heard. How do I know that? How do I know what kind of saved this is? Well, one thing is because one day I took soteriology and I realized that uh, the word salvation is much broader than what most people do with it. That it involves physical and spiritual. Under spiritual, it involves justification, sanctification, glorification. Under physical, It involves salvation from death and salvation from sickness, deliverance, saving. So I've got to ask, what kind of salvation is this talking about? Verse 13, but the one who endures till the end shall be saved. What end, Tim? Verse nine says, and they will deliver you up to tribulations and will kill you. Okay, what end? Physical death. What end? Tribulation. The end of tribulation. What's the antecedent of end? What's the previous reference of end? In verse 13, the one who endures to the end. What end? end of the age. Uh, of the age? End of the Oh, okay, verse six. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Definite article, the end. What end? Verse 3. Verse 3. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How does that make me know then that it's not referring to a person's life? It's not striving and working to the end of your life and then being weighed to see if you're redeemed, i.e. saved. He's talking about the end of the age. Exegesis is so simple if we'll only do it. Uh, But many, many people have taken verse 13 to be a specific rest reference to the good news of God's redemptive work which we are preaching. That is good news. But the good news in this passage has nothing to do with that. Look at the question they are asking and look, at, look at the answer he gives them they ask him about the age that's what they're asking about what are going to be the signs of your coming at the end of the age they're not asking about their salvation they're not that is in the sense of redemption they're not asking about anybody else's salvation in the sense of redemption they're asking about what is happening here between first and second advent we don't understand this you see don't read all of your soteriology into their question. They're asking a question that relates to their confusion. Lord, we don't understand this. Why? Because as they looked at it from their revelation of the Old Testament, they did not have the whole of the New Testament to put together and figure that out. What is this about your coming and, and the end of the age? And he says this is the way it's going to go down through history between these two advents. in this intervening time now these are the characterizations and there is going to be famine uh, there's going to be death there's going to be war there's going to be murder disease rampant in this inner Advent age and uh, the good news is everybody won't be destroyed. The bad news is a vast amount of the population will be. And if you want to figure that out, then you simply go back to Revelation 6 to 19 and figure it out. Uh, the population of the, the sea world is decimated, the population of the human world is decimated. There is death, death, death. And one could say this is going to be a genocide. How do I know it's not going to be a genocide? How do I know that? Good news. This good news is it won't be a genocide. I made a promise to you and I'm going to fulfill it. That's good news. The bad news is famine war death that's the bad news the good news is that the one who lives to the end the one who endures to the end end of what end of the age the one who endures to that shall be saved ie delivered delivered into what delivered into that kingdom which was so much a part of their thinking all through the Old Testament It was the kingdom, the kingdom. So we come back to even the disciples' prayer Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is central to their thinking. What about the kingdom? God, what's going to happen to the kingdom? He says it's going to look like curtains. But I've got good news for you. It won't be. And this good news shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. You see, the problem with most of us is we get soteriologically oriented rather than theologically oriented. We are anthropocentric rather than theocentric. We think God's whole program revolves around our salvation, and it doesn't. God's whole program revolves around his person and his sovereignty and his vindication. That's what God's doing on earth. We so easily become anthropocentric. God's biggest thing that he's doing is not saving your soul or anybody else's. If that's the biggest thing he is attempting to do, then he is an absolute failure. And the devil is the winner. Uh, Are most of the people that you see in the world redeemed? Are most of the people that have ever lived redeemed? If God's primary purpose is their redemption, then he's not doing too good a job. That's one facet of it. He will redeem a people for his name. He will also vindicate his name. And he will also demonstrate preeminently that he alone is God. And we've got to have a biblical mindset. We've got to have right where we started a philosophy of history that sees what God is doing on this earth. What on earth is God doing for heaven's sake? What on earth is God doing for heaven's sake is the point. That's what he's talking about. I said something to you, he said. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then he turns around and gives them that chronology at the end. Now, the the tragic thing, I think, in that is that this is so common, the idea, that that, uh, everybody in the world has got to hear the gospel before Jesus Christ can come for his church. And so the big mission's motivation is, let's hasten the coming of the Lord. Now, here's a, in in Ladd's book, The Blessed Hope, this is one this is his big point under The Blessed Hope. Third, pre-tribulation sacrifices one of the main motives for worldwide missions, namely hastening the attainment of The Blessed Hope, and then goes on to quote Matthew 24, 14. Uh, and then quotes a number of writers here and and here is a a typical statement one man who is a who has been a great missionary statesman name known to all of you uh, wrote an article called a dangerous heresy uh, speaking about you can guess what and under his article here is a typical statement Christ wants to return he longs to reign it is his right Then why does he wait? He is waiting for you and me to complete the task. He is waiting for us to do what he has told us to do. Many a time he must say to himself as he sits there, how long, I wonder, are they going to keep me waiting? When will they let me come back? How soon can I return to the earth to sit on my throne and reign? What a helpless deity. That man doesn't understand the sovereignty of God, let alone the program of God. God waiting, wringing his hands and saying, oh, oh, I wish I could operate. Oh, if only I could act. Think, think. God is sovereign. God is in charge. He is working according to a plan. And he will accomplish his purpose without compromising my will. For if I choose not to do what is there for me to do, he'll use a donkey to do it. He gave us good Old Testament precedent for that. He'll get it done. When the time for the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ was there, uh, and they put the palm branches down and all and then some got upset about that and he said if they didn't do this the stones would cry out and let's not pull God down to man's size let God be God uh, we, we need to get a picture of God God has a date set. He's coming. He's coming. And nobody knows that date. But I'll tell you, he's not ever sitting around trying to figure out when it's going to happen on the basis of what we do. He knows when it's going to happen. So we need to really think contextually. Tim... Question was asked me and I don't. I answered it but I didn't answer it well enough. I don't think. But a guy asked me one time, "Why is it that Jesus said that um, uh, no one knows the date or the time, nor not even I, but only my father?" He says, "Why was it that the father couldn't trust him with the dating?" And asked him, "Well, was it because it's relative according to what we do down here before he comes?" I answered it, but I don't think I answered it well enough. Could you answer now, that? Now, is your problem the one on the eschatological side of that or the Christological side of it? Is it? Christological. <laughs> okay. With regard to Christ, uh, we have that kind of question that should be raised in His not only his uh, knowledge, but in his power. Now, I think I can come at it easier from his power than I can, can his knowledge. I can identify better with that. For example... Uh, I can understand how I don't have to exert all my power uh, when I am playing with someone in a ball game that is less able than myself. And we use the illustration under the discussion of the hypostatic union. You probably will remember in in soteriology that I may be out in the... uh, uh, the sidewalk throwing a ball back and forth to, to a three-year-old kid and I lob it to him and he lobs it to me. I don't wind up and <laughs> throw it through his stomach, you know. Uh, but on the other hand, if he, uh, if he misses that little ball and it rolls out in the street and he runs to get it and a car is coming, I can exert ample power to run out and get that and jerk him back. I will act differently then. Now, how did Jesus act preeminently? You see, Philippians 2.5 tells us that very carefully. Uh, He surrendered the insignia of his majesty. He voluntarily gave up the independent use of his attributes so that he did not exert his full strength as the norm. Uh, He did not, as a norm, reveal his glory. Only for an instant, under the Father's will, when the soldiers came to take him, uh, did he then say the words, I am, accompanied by a revelation of his glory, and they fell backward. If he had continued to do that, they would never have gotten up. Why? Because sinful man could not stand in the presence of holy God. Jesus Uh, full nature was veiled at that point. Now, can you transfer that to knowledge as well? I think so. I don't know why I can do that with power, but not do it with knowledge. Jesus Christ voluntarily gave up the independent use of his relative attributes. Omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. Now, there were times when he was here, and bang, he was there. But that was not the norm. There were times when, for a moment, he showed his glory. I take it, that would be my explanation, the same thing with his knowledge. It is simply a statement of the uh, voluntary surrender of the insignia of his majesty in his humanity. uh catherine um i'm not sure if this is what you're looking for with regard to peter's death but in second peter it does say knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our lord jesus christ has made clear to me all right uh, that's not what i was uh, looking for but that's a good passage to bring in in conjunction with uh, the problem of peter something more general than that I'll, I'll let it rest in your mind for a while and uh, tease you with that uh, again on 293 the the matter of imminency then the matter of the nature of the church and the nature of the tribulation in all of that as far as I can see there is no reference to Revelation three ten please, just become because that has become a very highly debated passage, do not surrender the passage. The passage is loaded with potential. And that's why it has become such a basis of debate. But a very strong passage. <coughs> I, uh, I think I've perhaps said enough to uh, set that aside on the timing. If there are questions that you have about that, then bring them up uh, subsequently to me outside of class or otherwise. And I want to introduce uh, the next area in your notes on page 295. And in introducing that, I want to come back to Something I've been trying to keep before you all during the course. Prophecy is not given to decorate our eschatological time chart. Prophecy is given to change the way we live today and the way we shall live in the life to come. Uh, In an earlier time when I talked about 2 Peter chapter 3, I suggested to you that god brings the future in on us so that the motivation of the future might change the way we live today thus the future impacts our present now on this page on 295 i want to come at it from the other way not only does god use the future to impact our present but what we do in our present Impacts what we shall do in the life to come Uh, We are becoming Today What we will be in the life to come? And I wish I could say that in uh, four color video uh, Powerfully Uh, I wish I were an orator at that point to uh, Come up with some scintillating uh, phrase that would drive it home but let me simply put it that way that you are becoming today by everything you do what you will be in the life to come you are either gaining or losing in the development of the position that will be yours not for time but for eternity And if if this thought on this page will get hold of you, I guarantee you, you'll never live the same. You'll never live the same. There can be no greater motivational teaching in the Word of God with regard to how believers live today than the teaching of the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema absolutely crucial and the tragic thing is that so little is said of it now you know how much good I have said about the text that we're using for this course biography of a great planet unfortunately in that phenomenal sweep of prophecy almost nothing is said about the rewards of the believer and what they have to do with our position of reign with Jesus Christ in the life to come. And that's the norm. Now, that also creates for us another problem. Uh, there is a big discussion going on today. Called Lordship evangelism how many have heard the term okay two-thirds of you been in on it Uh, Lordship evangelism and the tendency in Lordship evangelism is to uh, test whether a person is real or not that is whether they are regenerated or not by their works And if you uh, don't do such and such, you probably aren't a Christian. If you do do such and such, you probably are a Christian, or vice versa, as the case may be. The motivation is great. That is, they look around at Christians and they see so many Christians that are not really shaping up. They see so many Christians that are lollygagging along. And professing the name of Jesus Christ and living like the devil and uh, therefore they say "Mm, they must not be real and they may not be real but what happens in the process is a compromise of the gospel of grace and that is the thing that stirred Zane Hodges to write his book The gospel under siege. Where once again, people are wanting to add to, it's a typical human trick, keep adding to the grace of God. Rather than seeing that my redemption, my justification is by faith apart from works. Period. Well, then somebody comes along and says, well, that will create a license to sin. Do you mean you can be regenerated and do nothing about it and end up in heaven? Well, let me ask you, what is the condition of the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 whose works are tried at the judgment seat of Christ? And they are found to all be wood hay and stubble yet he himself it says shall be saved yet so as by fire that doesn't look like a real good picture for that man in heaven the whole problem that is being debated today which adds to the gospel which compromises grace which presents a new theory of lordship evangelism, is a failure, an absolute failure, to see the impact of the understanding of the judgment seat of Christ on believers. We talk about justification a lot, sanctification a little, glorification almost not at all. Except we're all going to get to heaven someday and from there we flat it out but in the scripture you don't flat out there there is not equality in heaven that is taught nowhere in the scripture there is equality by how we get there Uh, we get there by being clothed in the garment of his righteousness But when we get there, what we do will be dependent not on Christ's righteousness, it will be dependent on our righteousnesses. Our righteous acts and deeds and motivations which we have had in this body. I handed out to you uh, a couple of sheets here. Uh, One by Lewis Perry Chafer from his systematic theology in order to put the believer's judgment in perspective with all the rest of the judgments. And I will be coming back to that in a later time to lay before you uh, pictures of the various judgments. For example, Uh, Judgment number one, for sin on the cross, Christ paid the price of all our sins. He took that judgment. Or judgment number two, the believer's works, which we are going to move into here. Uh, Saved yet so as by fire. Stripped naked. I've given you my title for this message in a popular vein, Bikini Believers at the Bema or maybe nudists at the Bema. Judgment number three, the Jews' great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. We've been talking about that, that particular judgment, the wrath of God on the earth. Judgment number four, the separation of the sheep and the goats, spoken of in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, judgment number five, the great white throne judgment I don't think that that fish in the water looks quite disconsolate enough as he looks up at the fire above but the great white throne judgment the last in Revelation chapter 20 now there is a tendency on the part of those who don't like details and don't like distinctions to put all of these together and say that's one judgment Uh, you gotta do some strange hermeneutics to make that work out and one of the ones that gets buried uh, is the believers judgment in this process now there is no need to talk about lordship evangelism if you'll understand the Bema that'll be all the motivation you need to live right and if you don't live right you're the loser but you won't get God to compromise because he won't deny himself. If I am utterly faithless, he is faithful. It's his person that's at stake. He cannot deny himself. And he has covenanted himself unconditionally with me. And I will be in heaven, not by my works, but by God's grace, solely, And I can never be punished for any sin that I have ever committed, am committing, or will commit. I can never be punished for that. If God were to punish me for even one sin, God would cease to be God, and God's kingdom would fall. So I stand before you today as a person who possesses the precise same righteousness as Jesus Christ. It's a phenomenal thought. How do I possess it? By something that I did? No. God imputed it to me. And he took my sins and he imputed them to Jesus Christ. What an exchange. He exchanged my sins for Christ's righteousness. Don't do anything to compromise the grace of God. But don't sacrifice one of the greatest motivations for getting people to shape up and live right that we have in this matter of the Bema. For I am becoming today what I will be in the life to come. Let me read just one statement from the other article that I handed out to you, and then you go through this uh, on your own. He's quoting... 1 Corinthians 3 if the work which any man has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward if any man's work is burned up he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved but only as through fire um, on the last page The relation between our works and our future reward ought, however, to be understood not in a mechanical but rather in an organic way. When one has studied music and has attained some proficiency in playing a musical instrument, his capacity for enjoying music has been greatly increased. In a similar way, our devotion to Christ and to service in his kingdom increases our capacity for enjoying the blessings of that kingdom both now and in the life to come. Leon Morris says, Here and now, the man who gives himself wholeheartedly to the service of Christ knows more of the joy of the Lord than the half-hearted. We have no warrant from the New Testament for thinking that it will be otherwise in heaven. I will only be able to enjoy heaven to the extent that I've been able to enjoy Christ today. I will not enjoy heaven more than I enjoy Christ today. I am building today today My capacity to serve Jesus Christ, to enjoy Christ in the life to come. Now that's an introduction. I want to go through that in the outline notes next time.